Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 481 of the podcast. It's July 26th, 2023. My guest today is George Says. You'll learn more about him in a minute. For more information about George and his new book, it's titled We Started With Respect. It's available now. Go to leanblog.org slash 481 or look in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lean Blog Interviews. I'm Mark Graven. Our guest today is George Says. He is a coach, a writer, and a speaker. He actively promotes enterprise excellence through a people-centric culture to the next generation of leaders. Uh, he's the author, uh, recently released, of uh, a business novel called We Started With Respect. So in that book, and we're going to talk about it today, he shares from his extensive executive experience in the medical device industry and uh, what he's learned from a lot of best practices sites when he uh, that he visited when he was president and CEO of AME, the Association for Manufacturing Excellence, an organization I'm sure listeners and viewers uh, know of. So George uh, is now retired, currently resides uh, with his wife in Carlsbad, California. So George, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here. I am jealous, I'm sure, of uh, not to get too sidetracked on this. So California weather in, in July. I'm, I'm sure. I, I hope it's uh, it's a glorious time of year, right? It's, it is finally nice. I have to tell you that I know the, the country's gone through some climate change and it's actually been cold here the entire year since December. And so I've had to wear long pants out to golf and had golf pants oh. because of rain. Yeah. So, but uh, I have to say since, uh, <laughs> since July came, we've finally gotten some nice 72, 73 degree days and, and uh, clear skies. So it's a beautiful day at the beach. Yeah, you're probably not going to garner. I'm not a golfer, so it doesn't bother me. You're not going to garner much sympathy <laughs> of having, having to wear long pants for the uh, the winter golf. But um, you know, I spent two years um, closer to Los Angeles along the coast, and I I, I, there's, I do miss that weather, especially summertime in other parts of the country now. Right, right. Absolutely. Okay, but this is not the weather podcast. Sorry, but uh, <laughs> um, we are going to talk about... Um, George's new book. Um, again, it's called We Started with Respect. But we start generally here on the podcast. I like to ask people their origin stories. So, you know, everyone's got a unique story of, of where they first got exposed to lean or TPS or however it was being framed at the time. What's your lean origin story? Oh, well, that's a fun one. Um, I had just become a uh, new general manager of a, of a very small division that was in. Uh, it was in dire straits. It, it had been the, the market leader and had a dominant market share and very profitable and and it had lost a lot of that. And uh, so as I came in, it was time to transform the entire business. And, and I was looking at where to start. And uh, fortunately for me, another one of our divisions uh, had gotten involved with Lean and they were teaching a seminar. This was within a, a Bristol-Myers Squibb companies. And they were teaching a seminar called The Goal. Oh. And it was based on the book by Eli Goldratt. And so I was invited to come to that and uh, take, the, take the course. And so I read the book and it made absolutely no sense to me. You know, the, the lot size of one, I thought, 
No, doesn't make sense. Doesn't fly. You know, that doesn't, you know, I don't know if it's going to solve anything, but I'll go down there. It was in North Carolina. And uh, okay, I'll go down there and I'll see what they got to say. But it, it didn't make sense to me. And uh, so the first half of the day was a, uh, uh, you know, discussion and going through the book principles and everything. And it, you know, it still wasn't really doing much for me. But then the second half of the day was the Lego block simulation. And oh my gosh, all the lights went on and it it just really it made sense to me, obviously. And uh, so when I left there, I asked the, the guy that was instructing, I said, would you give me all the materials? I'd like to take my entire company through this course. And so I went back to back here to California. I was uh, leading a California based division. And um, and I actually then went through some training and I took all the employees through, and I was the one that led the 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 uh, the exercise. And we had about 12 employees each time. And we just went through our entire company, which was fun for me to get to know everybody. Um, I was new in the company and we were in a turnaround situation, but uh, it was a great experience. And it was the same thing that we all went through was, yeah, 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 yeah. Then you do the Lego blocks is, oh my gosh. And uh, so it was a fantastic time for us. I, I will tell you just a, a snippet because I know all of you guys have been through the same kinds of things. Uh, but as an example, um, when we started our lean implementation, uh, we would pull a work order, uh, release a work order, pull the parts, you know, take it down through assembly, inspect it, package it, put it into finished goods. And the average time was about two to three weeks from start to finish from release to, uh, to put it into finished goods. And when we finished, uh, we were doing that in two hours. And so you can imagine all the things that had to happen to get to that point. But it was just a fun time and, and, uh, and a fun turnaround for the company as well. So after that, I was completely sold. And, and uh, you know, it, it's, just a, it's just a wonderful process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, the one thing that stands out to me in your telling of that story is the power of a leader going first in terms of the learning. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, you know, how often does an organization get the benefit of uh, whether it's in the context of lean or whatever of um, the general manager, CEO, business unit lead going in, getting the training and, and coming back and say, OK, I'm going to not just send everyone else to it, but I'm going to teach it. Mm -hmm. like, it doesn't seem like that happens very often. I mean, I'm applauding you for it. Well, thank you. And, and, and I think it's a big difference maker, too, because. I would see so often in companies that, that I would tour that have implemented lean that, you know, so often it gets relegated to operations and, and the leader, the, the senior leader, the executive doesn't see it as a company wide um, exercise and process. They say, well, that, that's something you do out there in, in operations. And uh, so I think that was an advantage for me. And then when I, kept growing in my career and getting you know, larger responsibilities in, in bigger companies, then we were always looking at our lean implementation as you know, enterprise-wide, always. And and that's a huge advantage because you know, it does apply throughout our, our business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a difference. I mean, thinking about different pathways that people could go through with lean. Um, a lot of organizations say, okay, well, here's a list of tools that we're going to go and implement. Versus mm -hmm. coming at it from the direction of like, what business problem are we trying to solve? How are we applying lean concepts or problem solving methods 
to those challenges? Is it a throughput challenge, a quality challenge, a safety challenge, a cost and profitability challenge? Um, are, are there ways where you've been able to influence business leaders to, to look at lean from more of that perspective of business benefit as opposed to operations activity? Well, I think when you are able to, to share that every ask, well, you can find in most aspects of your business a process. So whether you're doing accounting or you're doing sales or you're doing R&D, you still have a process. And, and if you can explain how we can break down and apply this to the process, then I think it opens their eyes to see that it's applicable throughout the company. And certainly, you know, we go back and I know this kind of ties in certainly to the book, but for Toyota, at the heart of this was always respect. And I think that when we do tie in the cultural aspect, then I think leaders see the benefit and can understand. Again, I'll say that, you know, if we treat our folks with respect, we have the chance of getting what I would call commitment. And if we don't treat them with respect, then we get, you know, maybe compliance or, or blind obedience. But it's a huge difference. And it's a huge difference in the, uh, uh, the operating results as well. So I'm going to ask a question, a friend of mine, I'm not going to name names or location or industry, but uh, a friend who who may end up listening to this episode had shared with me about um, conversations within his organization. Uh, there was an assessment done and there was a thing around safety and the assessment said, well, there's a compliance-based culture, which was like kind of low in the spectrum of where it could be. And my friend, who's you know a long-time lean practitioner, is having to have conversations, uh, you know, kind of challenging people who, if I remember right, he said like they thought compliance was fine. They thought, oh, compliance, oh, good. So, to somebody or an executive, um, you know, how, how would you kind of try to explain the difference between compliance and other words like commitment and like why why is that a necessary progression? to get beyond just compliance. Sure. Well, I think if you just envision what that means, what the word means, compliance is I, I'm going to do what's required of me. And that's okay. That's good. But commitment also implies that I'm not going to do what's required of him. I'm, I'm going to take it a step further. And if I need to take that extra step, if somebody needs some extra help, um, you know, it, it, I don't need to just do it and walk away and say, well, that's good enough and hope it works out. I'm not going to walk away until I know it's going to work out, until I know it's it's good, uh, because I care and I'm committed, you know, to the folks that are committed to me as well. So I think, you know, it's just, uh, you know, sometimes folks don't want to invest in this area that we call the relational part of business, or maybe sometimes call it the soft stuff. But really, the you know, if you look at some of the the, the results, it's phenomenal. Uh, the operating results of companies that do focus on engagement and on commitment and on respect and trust. You know, it's, it's, it's light years. And I, I don't know if there's anyone that would ever claim that compliance is the path to world-class performance or manufacturing excellence. Like AME is not a, you know, uh, or, or Shingo Institute. They're not, they're not giving awards for like the most compliant company. <laughs> right. Just on the surface, it sounds kind of silly, right? It does. It does. Well, you know, in terms of like a regulatory environment, you know, are you compliant to the regulatory, uh, you know, 
we all tend to, you know, like we say, the taxes, you don't try and do better than, than the IRS requires. You know, you just do, you're compliant. <laughs> sure. So on the kind of same thing in my world, we were in the, the uh, medical device. You know, we weren't trying to get an A-plus with the FDA, but we were trying to make sure we were compliant. So there might be some areas where that applies, but, you know, in terms of performance and attitude, you know, I'll take commitment any day over compliance. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah, it's, I think it's in addition to in, in that, in that spectrum or progression right. that compliance is fine, but not sufficient, you know, necessary, but not sufficient, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely want to build upon that. So, um, you, you, you talked about, you know, this exposure to, um, you know, the goal, Ellie uh, Goldratt's book was, was this like early to mid nineties, just guessing of when the goal was, it popular, was. most it was popular. 19, 1991. 1991. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And actually, that book heavily influenced the book that I wrote. In fact, mm -hmm. it's why I wrote this book in a novel form. <laughs> right. um, I had read business books, and I would tend to read the first five or six chapters and think, I think I got the gist of it, and I wouldn't finish it. And and this one just kept my attention because I got involved with the characters, and I wanted to see what happened. And and also, uh, the novel provided me the opportunity to, to give it to my wife to read. <laughs> and yeah. I was this was my first time in a leadership role as far as at a divisional level. And it was a turnaround situation. So she was able to understand a lot of the things that I was going through without just getting bombarded with a bunch of business terms. So I thought that if I ever wrote a book, I'd want to write it as a business novel, which has some complexities, but it was the influence from the goal that, that started yeah. that. Yeah. It kind of spawned a whole genre of business novels. I don't know if the goal was the first. I think it was definitely the most popular or the first popular one in that format. Right, right. Well, Goldmine after that, I think, was was very good. And and uh, Patrick Lencioni's book, The uh, the Five Dysfunctions of a Team, is, is also uh, you know, written as a business yeah. fable. Yeah, so The Goldmine, uh, Michael Ballet, and I think Pascal Dennis has a couple of business novel format right. books right. as well. Um, so we'll, we'll come back and, and talk about the book uh, in a second. Uh, again, we're joined. George says the book is We Started with Respect. I started with weather in this conversation again. Sorry. <laughs> um, but what I was going to come back to was uh, when when did you get exposed to, let's say, something framed as lean or TPS and sort of combining or layering? I assume it was more combining it with what was learned from theory of constraints instead of replacing Right, right. It, it was it was further down in, in my career after that um, when I got to work for a, another company that was um, definitely steeped in lean and very involved. In fact, it was the group that introduced me to AME, mm -hmm. and um, they had won uh, several awards and uh, you know, a lot of folks that that uh, had been steeped in it for quite some time. And and that's when it kind of transferred over from the the things we learned through Goldrat to uh, to more of the the TPS based uh, system and approach. Yeah, yeah, and you know, there's I haven't seen a lot of this in a while, but you know, I can't think of how much time has been spent people debating online on LinkedIn or blog comments of you know lean versus theory of constraints. Like there's mm. a lot of time invested into that. And, you know, I'd rather think through like when I was at General Motors, um, 1995, starting my career, they brought in I think it was literally Goldratt. Uh, Goldratt's consulting group 
And um, we read the book and there was kind of, you know, kind of a cheesy video version. Did you? I think I've seen that. Dramatization <laughs> of the book. Yes. And they had, um, they, they were doing like a computer based, you know, simulation. But I remember, you know, there was a lot to be learned there. And then GM was starting to be influenced by Toyota people slash lean, however we were going to label that. I mean, I think there's, there's few, there's very few parts of it that come into conflict, really. I don't think we should be debating this versus that. What are we learning from them from from each of them? What 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 would you say if if somebody were trying to start that debate, which I'm not trying to start here? Well, I think that that TPS really layered on the tools and the uh, the culture aspect on top of this, and and so it, it you know it, in my mind it was more of a progression. So I learned more about. How to do it and what tools to use to accomplish that, and uh, you know, so I think that was that was what made a, a difference for me, and certainly in, in in the implementations after that were quite different because we were much more uh, tool based. Yeah, and 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 the thing that comes to mind now that we're kind of thinking about this, I mean, you know, the, I think if I'm remembering right, for what it's worth, the theory of constraints, people would say like you know, your first operation should be your bottleneck. Because then you can't be building up whip through the flow, and mm -hmm. like some TPS purists, which I'm not always sure what that phrase means. Like, well, you shouldn't have a bottleneck; you should have a bottle, uh, a balanced um, operation. And like, uh, the world's complicated. We're doing. We'll figure things out, and we'll see if we can really um, hold. You know, be a purist. I don't know what that gets us. So we can we can learn something from all these methodologies. I think. Right. Well, for me, it started with Herbie and then just kept going from there. Mm -hmm. So the book, um, we started with respect. Does that title, is that born directly from one of the lean transformations that you were a part of where it did like literally? Am I taking the title too literally or what was the inspiration for the title? Well, the inspiration, I think, really was the, the focus on, on culture and that um, and people. And that I just am a, a big proponent that if you start there, um, it should start with respect. And, and, I, and one thing that I was noticing when I was uh, uh, at AME and getting to go see all these companies in the, in the last several years, if you remember back, if you take back you know, 15 years ago and folks were starting their lean implementation, the first thing they were starting with was either 5S or they were starting with a, they set up a cell. You know, middle manufacturing, and try and get some kind of a success story going and building. But even though they did that, a lot of times, you know, folks are are resistant to change, and so you know that would be localized to a success there. But there'd be a lot of battlegrounds going on about, well, we're not going to change, we're not going, they're not going to force me to do that, and and uh, so I just felt like um, that, that the culture was 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 is is that starting point. It, it's it's not the and, and I'm seeing that that companies in, in AME that that was touring getting back to that that they were starting with a focus on culture yeah for a couple of years before they would go into their lean implementation and so instead of starting with the tools and starting with that resistance to change they're starting with culture and they're building you know starting with respect they're building trust and then they're talking about the tools and the folks then they, they trust management they trust each other. And those tools then can go in much, you know, there's a lot less resistance to change at that point. So 
sorry for my little brain spasm there, but but it it was you know I I just saw that really changing, and and I thought that that is what made sense to me. And if I could go back and change how we did things at the implement some of the implementations I was involved in, we would have started with that to begin with. And uh, so it's it's so that's that's end up being why the the, the book was that way because I thought that was the most important thing at this point to start with. I think that you will get a much deeper and much more sustainable lean implementation if you start yeah. with that. Yeah. And, and a lot of times people will frame things as an or. So again, like, you know, mm. lean or theory of constraints. I'm like, well, why not? Why not? And um, thinking about the, the focus on process, you know, within, you know, lean mindset and, and methodology, that doesn't mean it's process or people. That we 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 can or it's not you know need to focus on both right right I mean it's it's people are the ones who are doing it and our culture is how we get that done our processes are how we deliver the product and so they're all equally important um, yeah. in fact you know I that's there's four things that I like to look at as a senior leader when I when I go to a company and that is a begin with the people and then the culture because I believe the people are the ones who are going to do the job and the culture is how they do it. Then the product portfolio, because that's what we're going to deliver to our customer, and then the operating systems, and those are how we deliver it to our customer. And so they're all integrated together. My belief is you can have great products and a great system, but if you don't have the right people and the right culture, you're not going to be able to deliver it. And so I like to start first with that people, but you need all four ultimately mm-hmm. yeah. to be successful. Yeah. And you know, you you bring up trust, right? Well, I mean, without Trust, you know, Toyota uses language around mutual trust. Like without mm-hmm. mutual trust, I don't know what else you can really accomplish. Because we think through, um, you know, scenarios where um, aspects of lean or the Toyota production system only work because of trust. Like, for example, I think of somebody reaching up and pulling an andon cord. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen without mutual trust of management trusting the employees aren't going to just pull the cord because they don't want to work. And that lead, uh, employees trust that their leaders aren't going to come and yell at them or blame them or punish them. Like, are, where, where are some other elements of like what what just wouldn't work in the context of lean without a high enough level of trust? Well, I, I think what you're mentioning there that's that's a that's a very good point. That you know, the the folks when we talk about respect, I think that um, the one thing that I've always advocated is that if we talk about respect in the business, we tend to think about respect from management to employees. And that's very, very important. But I think that when you're developing your culture, it's got to be a culture of respect from management to employees, from employees to management, and from employee to employee. And you have to have that that entire circle because you know you're ultimately you're dependent on each other as a as a team. And as you said, you know, that that trust when you're gonna pull that cord, when you stop that process, that management is gonna say, that's a good thing to do, and, and there's there's recognition. Um, I remember going to a, a tour of a company that um, they had uh, had a recognition board, and they had up there posted all of their failures. And so I thought that was really interesting that they were they were that open to say, we're going to congratulate and reward this person because they found a failure, and they found it here. And the importance that they emphasized was you found it here, and it wasn't our customer finding it out there. Yeah. And yeah. they celebrated 
you know, they're all the times when they found a mistake, they celebrated those. And that's, well, that's a heck of a, you know, trust there that that's been developed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and respect between each other. Yeah. And I think I'm remembering um, the late Norman Bodek talking about some companies that would do that same thing. I think this might have been, you know, from one of his Japan visits, but, you know, in the context of doing my podcast, um, my favorite mistake, I've had some guests talk about celebrating mistakes or failures, um, you know, within an American company, um, mm-hmm. Jim, Jim McCann, who was the founder of 1-800-Flowers, very different type of business. You know, he, he described how, you know, they, they would kind of do a celebration and like, you know, mistake of the month, yeah. awards yeah. even. And um, like, that doesn't, like, to me, that doesn't encourage more mistakes. We're not, you know, so, somehow incentivizing it, we're just recognizing the reality of mistakes are happening, and and to 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 celebrate the fact that somebody felt safe to call it out, right? I think helps us improve. Can't they, I mean that could tie back into our discussion on committed versus compliant? You know, the compliant person says, "Oh well, not my job. You know, I did what I was supposed to do. I was compliant. Check the box." But the committed person says, "I don't think that looks right." I think there's a, there's a potentially a problem there. Can we check this out before it gets to the customer? And you know, they care enough about the, the company to do that. And they feel safe to do it, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So, and one other thing I was going to ask you, George, um, on your website, you, you, you cite something that gets brought up um, a lot, the, you know, the Gallup employee engagement surveys, or we could almost start calling it the disengagement survey. <laughs> Right. Uh, long-standing problem. It's not just a COVID era thing of, you know, two out of three employees being disengaged or highly disengaged. Kind of talk through this maybe from a problem standpoint, like first off, like why, why do you think that exists? So I want to maybe talk about countermeasures, but like what to, to you from your, what your observations and experience, so like what, what, what are the causes if not root causes? Right. Well, and I do use a lot of that information um, in my book. And in fact, I'm, I'm doing a keynote presentation and, and citing a lot of that information. You know, I think the, the the first thing that comes to mind for me is is the leadership approach. It's, 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 it's our job as leaders to provide a culture that is both engaging and motivating to our employees. And so, you know, I don't look to the employees and say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you engaged? It's why have what have we not done to create a culture that engages and motivates you? And for that, in, in fact, I like to look back and say, well, then how do folks get into leadership? You know, when we think about our leadership model, you know, typically if there's an opening, it's usually the person that's been you know a functional leader. You know, they've been good at their functional role. So the person that sells the most becomes a sales manager. The person that produces the fastest becomes the the lead or the production manager, we're hoping they'll replicate that. But just because they've done that, and I'm not meaning to say to belittle this for you, but but have they were they a leader to begin with, or have they been trained to lead? And we tend to just place them into this leadership role, and then hope for the best. And 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 so we've got this whole group of leaders out there in a in a company, and you know what percentage of the folks are leaders, but they're influencing all these folks. And as I say. Um, you know, I, as the CEO, I can go up and stand in front of employees and say, I'm going to advocate for a people-centric leadership approach here in our company. But for you and for every employee, the, the culture of the company is just what your leader 
and with the approach they're using. And so if I say people-centric leadership, but your leader is a tyrant, the company culture to you is tyrannical then. And so I think that's the gap is that we're looking at this and saying, well, there's the there's the results of the survey. Yeah, they're not good. And I think leaders tend to respond in a more business-centric stand uh, from perspective. And they say, okay, I see those Gallup results. I must be leaking productivity like crazy because of that. <laughs> yeah. And so the first thing they do is develop some countermeasures to, to address that. They say we're going after engagement, but they're really after um, productivity. But I would say that if you, the, the people-centric leader would say, well, what can I do to motivate that person to engage? I like to use the word fulfillment because I think fulfillment is a great trade for engagement. And if we can do find a way to fulfill our employees each day, then they naturally become engaged. And guess what? Then all those production numbers, you know, the, the engagement numbers. But by the way, there's a whole slew of statistics that uh, Gallup uh, also publishes that shows they, they compared the top quartile companies from their Q12 survey in employee engagement to the bottom quartile. And there's a whole slew of statistics um, of how much better it is that they're the operating results when you're in the top quartile. And it ends, you know, that productivity is in there as well and safety and but it ends with 23% more profitability. So, so when we invest and find a way to engage and motivate our employees, we're actually going to improve our business statistics as well by leaps and bounds. And so long-winded answer, I think it goes back to leadership and leadership and the culture that we establish and how we're able to engage our employees. Yeah, yeah. It's a podcast. Long-winded answers are okay. <laughs> okay, good. We have time. Um, it's all right. Brain cramps are okay, too. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there, there's so many things you touched on there. Um, you know, other other causes or contributing factors of like, and this happens a lot in healthcare, taking the best individual contributor, rewarding them by saying, you're now a manager, and then not really mm -hmm. giving them um, standards or, or training or expectations of like, oh, you'll figure it out. And I'm like, well, some people do, but then some people end up kind of following the pattern of whatever tyrannical leader they happen to be working for. And right. it's, right. uh, it's on, uh, you know, it's, it's unfair. It's, um, again, not the path to world-class performance. Um, but you've probably well, seen companies that are willing to make that investment in supervisors, managers, training. What what have you seen that's sort of like, you know, the best of that? Well, um, I can think of, I'm trying to think of the company's name that uh, does the airbags in, uh, up, up in uh, Utah. Auto Leap. Uh, yes. What a fabulous tour. I've been there a couple of times. And, uh, you know, clearly that, you know, the, the amount of investment they make in their managers, leads, leaders, in fact, I remember the first tour that I went through, and it was a lead telling us about a section. And I thought, my gosh, this person has got stronger leadership principles than any manager I've ever met. And they're a lead. And it was it was phenomenal, the and you know, what they had done at, at that company. And and so I think that was always for me where the bar was set in terms of investing in leadership. And you know, I think that uh one of the elements um, that I have in, in the book is every leader buys in. So it's basically 100% leadership buy-in. And, and some people see that as maybe as an ultimatum, but 
I think about us in lean and we have standard work in production, right? I mean, and would we in production say, well, it's okay. This is, this is how we'd like you to produce this product. And here's a picture of it, but you know, you don't have to follow it. You can do it any way you want. I mean, <laughs> You'll you know, figure that, it out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, here's, here's what you should do in the end, you know, whatever you have to do to make it that Well, we don't do that. But yet when it comes to leadership, one of the most important roles in our company, we just kind of leave it up to chance. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a big gap in our systems and, and, <laughs> Conversely, it's a huge opportunity. And, and certainly we'd see that with the, the kind of numbers that they were sharing with us at AutoLeave. You know, the investment was paying off hugely. Yeah, yeah. You know, impressive uh, results, especially on important things like safety and you know, doing some work that's inherently risky or dangerous if they didn't have good process and, and good training for everybody involved. Yeah, we talk about rocket science and literally they're, they're they're developing an airbag something it's a controlled explosion <laughs> you know so yes safety is a big thing there yeah yeah and you know you think of the things you take for granted and you know quality and excellence i used to use this example of like you know when you're driving down the road you don't have to even think of whether a if i were to get into a, a bad front end collision would the airbag go off very, very likely to happen. And you also don't have to worry about it just randomly going off. Now, one of their competitors, Takata, then got into a bunch of trouble with that. And I, I stopped using that example. But I think it still applies yeah. with auto. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And then, you know, medical devices. Um, I think another area where, you know, you, you sort of take for granted, you know, high reliability, high performance in, in a way that healthcare delivery you know, hospital care, and you know, you you couldn't or you shouldn't make that same assumption of of high reliability, unfortunately, in in other settings. So, I'm um, sorry, I got up on a soapbox there, but well, uh, it's so true. And having come out of medical device, you know, uh, arena, you know, certainly committed versus compliant was very important because we like to would say to our our employees, you know, what if this product was being used on your spouse, your child, your mother, you know, and and make it make everyone like it's going to be used there because, you know, it's going to be used on somebody's mother, somebody's father, somebody's child. Yeah. Yeah. So around culture again, um, you know, that that's, you know, we, we've been talking about it here. One of the themes, you know, with the book, um, creating an extraordinary culture. One thing I wanted to talk about here um, in a little bit more depth was being intentional or focusing on creating or designing or whatever word you might use of like, actively focusing on culture why why is that so important why why is that better than the alternative right well you know for me the, actually the word intentional that you used is is the word a big word for me and and i was always a proponent of people centric leadership i was involved in that uh, but then i went to a um, a leadership summit and it was uh, put on by ame but it was hosted by bob chapman the ceo of Barry waymiller and at this meeting, he used the word intentional, and he used it in terms of having an intentional plan for your culture. And I thought about that. I thought about as president of this medical device company that I was at then, that, that we believed in all these things and advocated. And certainly we had a set of values that we had spent a lot of time crafting, and they were up on our website and up on the wall somewhere. But, but um, did we really have an intentional plan for 
taking those values and integrating them into the business and into the way that we interacted with each other? And the answer was no. And so that really got me thinking a lot about at that time of how do we make this really an intentional way we do business? And, and I'll tell you that when I wrote my book, I had a big aha moment related to this. I, um, I sent the book out to three different groups of beta readers, you know, eight people each time. And so then I started getting this feedback. And so it was very interesting. So I had a, a guy that I worked with in the 1980s say, wow, George, you wrote all about us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there were some things in there about us. but you know. <laughs> and, then, and then another person that I worked with in the 1990s at a different company said, wow, you wrote all about us. <laughs> uh, yeah, sort of, yeah, but... And then somebody that I worked with in the 2000s, and he said the same thing. And even uh, a gentleman by the name of Dick Bryan, who worked at Wiremold, said, you know, I read your book. And, and he said, I thought you told the Wiremold story from start to finish, just say for uh -huh. a little bit longer. Huh. And it, what really hit me was, was that from what Bob said, that the real issue is, you know, we've been involved, uh, evolving in our approach to culture and leadership. So if we go back to World War II, you know, post-World War II is very much a business-centric culture and the leadership approach was command and control, you know, based on our military success. And then, you know, we get into the 1980s and it was much more team-based with quality circles and self-directed work teams. And then we go to the 2000s, you know, the turn of the century and we start talking about servant leadership and then people-centric leadership where everybody feels valued. And I think that, that the companies that participated in that, that evolving approach to culture were the ones that that saw those changes, but the real issue was that most companies, like the companies, the companies that I worked with, and the people that were re responding was, they didn't have a, an intentional plan. They had a culture by default, and so what they had was what we talked about before: somebody getting promoted into a leadership role, and you know they're doing either something they read or or the person that they work for, or you know whatever. But but it's different depending on which door you open. You know, you open a door and it's a whole different culture in each room. And that's what your company's made up of. And so there's no intentional plan, no standard work. Employees are left to say, I don't know if I, those guys get raises differently or there's a different disciplinary plan or a different promotion plan. And I don't know. And, and, and then you go back into <laughs> regressing into, I'm just going to be compliant because I don't know what's going on here. It's all confusing. And, and so, yes, the whole idea of an intentional plan is having just like we have um, we have strategy deployment to help us um, achieve our mission and vision. I think we need an intentional plan uh, of our culture to help us integrate the values because we all do have that set of values up there on the wall. But how do we get them into our business? How do we get them into the way that we do everything and interact with each other on a daily basis? Yeah, yeah, I love the way you, you talk about that and, and some of that phrase. Um, culture by default, or, you know, I'm thinking of um, somebody I've learned a lot from the last couple of years, uh, Tim Clark, um, the author of a book, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, which is about culture and leadership. And mm -hmm. he emphasizes, um, yeah, you always, you have a culture, right? So in, instead of letting, letting it be a culture by default or just evolving or happening, um, he uses the phrase similar to what you're saying, culture by design. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's the name of, of uh, his podcast. I recommend, you know, anyone listening to this, check out Tim Clark's podcast, Culture by Design. Great way to learn about leadership, psychological safety, and, and what that leads to. Improvement and innovation, better business results. It's all connected to, to trust and 
things that we've been talking about here today. Right, right. Well, we believe in that for our processes. We believe in standard work. Why wouldn't we do the same thing with with our leadership approach? And and it's not an ultimatum. It's it's being consistent and uh, and, and using best practices throughout the company. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, you know, um, I, there's two other, I think, you know, key pillars, it seems, from your book. And I, I think they're um, kind of interrelated. So, you know, beyond creating an extraordinary culture, the other two being uh, tearing down the walls and connecting the dots. If you would, you know, George, give us kind of a summary of what you mean by those phrases. And hopefully I'm not wrong in that they're, they seem interconnected. Yeah, well, I think they are, too. And, and you know, certainly tearing down the walls, we you know, when we do have this culture by default, and as I said, when you go into each, each, you turn to the key and go to each door, you know, the, the, the culture is different. And, and we tend to not have them, you know, companies uh, you know, or, or departments working with each other. We have the, the old over the wall mentality. And, um, and so we've got to tear down those walls. And it starts, to me, it starts in the, uh, the senior leadership, the executive leadership team. Um, you know, too often, I think that, Leaders, um, I talk about this a little bit in terms of, of teamwork, but uh, leaders come into a, a meeting and, you know, my question, do they come in as part of that leadership team or do they come in as a representative of their function? You know, are they trying to protect their territory and their turf? And all that does is erect walls between departments. And I think that when a, when a leader comes into a, a meeting, they should be uh, aligned to the team that's highest on the in that room. And in fact, the, the senior leadership team, sh- you know, that the HR person should be bringing in the toolkit of the HR, but they should be part of that leadership team that's making decisions and, and are accountable. And it starts there as far as tearing down the walls, because if the walls are up there, believe me, the walls are throughout the organization and everyone's doing duck and hide and, you know, they're not going to help each other. Um, so it, it's, so I think that first step is you've got to tear down the walls that are between, you know, the departments and make sure that that's all open and working together. And then connecting the dots is, is just what we've been talking about. And just, you know, you tear down the walls, you've got to put something in this place and it's reconnecting that. And, and that's connecting with each other throughout the company. Um, I advocate in, in the book talked about um, uh, one of the things that the teamwork team did was, was ask each department to have a, a meeting with one of their suppliers within the company one of the supplying departments and with one of their customers. So if they were receiving parts or information from one department to meet with them and then conversely to meet with the person that they process is next in their step. But by sitting down and understanding what each other are trying to accomplish and, and, you know, you realize that the other department isn't the enemy, you know, I've, I've led that off in many times that I've gone to and, and started my first thing. I said, who's the enemy? You know, the enemy isn't, you know, the person that's working next to you isn't the other departments. And so when we understand that and understand that they're trying to do a job and, and break that down and how, how can we make that better, then you, know, you open up those lines of communication and it's, it's really powerful. And then you begin to connect those, those dots. Yeah. yeah, you don't ever want to hear the production department think the quality department is their enemy. I've worked in some environments like that. Again, that, that's, that's not... Um, the foundation for world-class performance. You, you know, when, when, when that exists, or sadly, um, in in healthcare, um, if people view the patient safety department mm. as the enemy, yeah. like we should all be working 
for the same goal back to what your point of, you know, what, what if that was your grandmother on the operating room table? Like, you know, but it's, it's just, I think like um, it, a lot of it flows downhill to your point of like, if the, if the executive team is not really a team and there's infighting and posturing and blaming, of course, that's going to cascade through the organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've worked in a company just like that. And, and in fact, you know, I think so many times that, uh, you know, our leadership role models are could be people that have shown us great things to do and some that have shown us what not to do. And 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 that was something that I did see in one company is, oh, my gosh, there was, you know, the, the vice presidents were set up against each other. And so there was there was, you know, there was a lot of infighting in the company. And uh, so, yeah, absolutely. That's a big part. Starts there. Yeah. It starts with respect. It starts with teamwork. There's that, but the title of the book is We Started with Respect, which is a great place to start. And I'm, I'm glad you're emphasizing that. Uh, our guest again today, George says the book is available now, paperback format, hardcover format, Kindle book format. And um, it's, it's uh, available for order now. So go and check that out. I'll link to George's uh, website uh, in the show notes as well. So I'm going to ask one other question before we wrap up, George. You know, I, I asked about your lean origin story, but mm-hmm. I also like to ask, um, you know, at, at any point along the way, are there any kind of key influences or mentors that really, you know, helped your your learning, your growth, in in your understanding and practice of lean? Anyone that, you know, as we've been kind of jogging your memory about some of these different companies and places you've been, is there anyone that you know is kind of worth kind of calling out? as being, um, you know, influential? Well, there's, um, I've, I've been fortunate to have mentors throughout my career, um, you know, starting very early on when I got into my first role in a, in any kind of a leadership role. And it was somebody that, that believed in me, um, that I was pleasantly surprised by that and, uh, and, uh, gave me an opportunity. But, um, one mentor that I had, and this relates to lean because it relates to teamwork, but it, it, he, he advocates something that was very, very, very corny, corny statement. And, uh, but I've kept it throughout with me throughout my career. And he said that, um, with teamwork, well, let's just start with without teamwork, two plus two equals three uh-huh. thing uh-huh. against each other. Yeah. And he said, with teamwork, two plus two can equal five. And, you know, it sounds corny, but it's something that I have found that worked. Um, that first company that I took over as as general manager, we had a, um, a what we called our operating uh, statement, and it was teamwork, quality, and speed. Our future depends on it. And it was it was that simple. But I, I really believed in in that teamwork, and it's amazing um, how simple it is. Uh, maybe how corny that statement is, but how true it is, and it's powerful. I mean, it's just powerful the way you can move mountains together as a team. And it's certainly a lot more fun. Um, but that that mentor shared that with me and it's stuck with me you know, for all these years. Yeah. Yeah. And we can all be grateful. Uh, you know, hopefully we we have mentors who, like you were saying a minute ago, um, were help who helped show us what to do, not just the. Yeah, war stories and the wounds of uh, that 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 come from seeing what not to do. Um, hopefully, we have both. <laughs> right, right. Well, I tried to pattern some of the characters after after some of the the folks that I was lucky enough to to work with throughout yeah. my career. Yeah. So again, uh, the book is "We Started with Respect." Um, I, I've got to ask though, like I 
you know, the, the business novel format, you know, the goal kind of set the standard of where like, you know, the plant manager, there's also kind of like trouble at home and tension with his wife. And I don't like, is, is that par for the course that there's kind of, you know, a subplot about um, the protagonist lead characters, family and other struggles, or is this mostly a business novel about business? Well, it's mostly about business. I, I thought about get going that way a little bit. I remember Alex Rogo and what he went through, but Right. Oh, it was it was too much, you know, to to try and weave that in. It was enough to write these characters. Um, originally, though, I'll tell you, I wanted to write the book um, through the eyes of three characters, and what it was meant to be was jobs that I had in my career. So through, and so I did write it through the eyes of a distribution associate that I a role I've had my first role in in medical device um, as a supply chain manager, and then as a CEO. And originally, I really wanted to follow these three characters in depth of what they were going through through this transformation. But I realized that as I started trying to do it, it was going to get so big. It was going to be like a Tom Clancy novel that nobody would read. And so I I do include those three characters in there, but it's I'll say it's, it's probably 85, 90% through the CEO's eyes. And then we still do uh, capture some of the things that happen with these other two uh, characters in the, in the, in the novel. Uh, but Pretty much, I do bring in some of their 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 uh, outside life, but pretty much keep it uh, keep it contained <laughs> to business. But there is a you know there's there's some different characters in the you know there's always like the character that you wonder are they going to make it or not, and so uh, there there's, there's one of those. There's also I I, I didn't say anything this before, but there's also uh, a character that has a unique quality about him. Oh shoot, I said him. That wasn't that. I just 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 narrowed it down. <laughs> <laughs> but has has a very unique quality in the way that he um, speaks. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, one of my questions after for all my beta readers is if they could figure out what was his unique qualities. And I will tell you that all twenty four readers failed. They, no one was able to figure out his unique quality. So, if somebody can figure that out when they read the book and post it on a review. That'll be fun to see. I'll, I'll certainly respond if I can see it and, and say, you got it. Because uh, no, one, no one has figured it out yet. It's a very subtle but uh, definite uh, part of this character. All right. Cool. Um, again, we've been jo- uh, joined today by George Says. Uh, the book is We Started With Respect, uh, available now. Uh, congratulations. It, you know, it's a, a, fir- a first book. It's uh an accomplishment, a milestone. Um, hope you have opportunity to celebrate that. Oh, absolutely! Thank you. It's been it's been a real fun uh, fun journey. Yeah. You mean with the book or today on the podcast? Hopefully both. Yeah, both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always enjoy talking the things we've been talking about. This is uh, this is fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, it it has been. So I just want to double check. Dangerous question. Um, I'm not a lawyer. They say don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. <laughs> Right. That's not how a podcast works. But yeah. um, thank, thank you for rolling with it, um, George. You've been a great guest and um, hope people will go check out the book. Really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it too. Well, thanks again to George for being our guest today. To learn more about him, to buy his new book and more, look for links in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 481. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. 
If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.